Lord Jesus, we've already prayed it many times. Um, even before the service began and we've continued since then, we are in need of your presence here this morning. We invite you, we welcome you, we need you. Would you come and have your way among us, Lord? Would you come and speak to the hearts of your people, Lord? May it never be about what someone up here said. May it always be about what the Lord spoke to me during that time. So, Lord, would you come and just build that testimony among your people? Speak. Your servants are listening, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been working through the Sermon on the Mount over the last, uh, I believe, five, six weeks. Um, and I just want to recap real quick before we jump into the passage we have this morning. Uh, the essential message of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus coming to the people of Israel and saying, the king is doing something new. The king is up to something that you have never heard of or seen before, so pay attention. And he begins with the Beatitudes, the, the blessed ours. Here are the kind of people that are blessed in the king's new kingdom. Here are the kind of people that the king is looking for in his kingdom. Here are the kind of people the king wants to make you into because of this new thing that he's doing. And it wasn't some rule followers who love the law. Instead, it was people who understand a right standing with God, how spiritually poor we are and dependent on him. And, and through that, we grow in a desire for righteousness and for gentleness and for peace. He was describing, here's what I'm looking for on the inside, because everything they had been taught before was, here's what you need to look like on the outside. But Jesus was coming to say, I'm doing something new. Don't miss it. And he said, if you're going to be a part of this new kingdom that I'm ushering in, there's a new kind of righteousness that the king requires. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the passage where he told the people, he said, unless you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter this kingdom. And remember, we, we talked about the moment of panic that they must have felt. Who can be more righteous than these people? Who can do more than these people? But Jesus wasn't saying, you need more of the same thing. He was saying, there's a new kind, different in quality righteousness that you need to enter into the kingdom, to be a part of what God is now up to in the world. And then to, to illustrate this, he launched into a series of teachings that start with, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, we looked a couple weeks ago, don't murder don't do this action, but I tell you to even be angry with your brother in your heart is the same as murder. You've heard it said, this is how you should be righteous, but I'm giving you a new lens to view it through. I I'm pointing things in a different direction. Does this make sense? You guys remember this? It's all coming back to you if you've been here before. Okay. So we find ourselves still in the middle of this, you've heard it said, but I tell you, form of teaching. He's, he's kind of redefining righteousness. And, and this week we find ourselves, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go to hell. Some pretty intense things that Jesus is saying here. Uh, let's, let's kind of break it down and look at it section by section. The first couple verses. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And listen, everyone in the crowd would have said, yes, amen, we agree. We're on board with that. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now you can imagine the crickets in the crowd. No one wanting to make eye contact with anyone else because they're like, oh, he knows. Why would he call me out like that? Oh, no. Let me ask you this question. Let's, let's just clarify what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus saying that noticing a pretty woman or, or a handsome man, he was speaking to a crowd full of men, and so he says to lust after a woman, but really, this is not just a male thing. Is he saying that to notice a pretty woman or a handsome man is the same thing as having an affair with them? Is that what he's trying to say? Then what is he trying to say, church? This is where you feed back. I'm not going to give you answers. Not yet. What is that? It's a heart issue. Okay. Okay, so yeah, he's, he's kind of talking about like, we're going to talk here in a second. This isn't just the at a glance type of thing. There's, there's something much deeper happening in the heart here. What, what, what is Jesus trying to communicate to the crowd? This is really popular. Most of us have read this before. Okay. Sure. This is a cause and effect type relationship. Jesus talks a lot, uses a lot of agricultural terms in his teachings. And one of the things he continually talks about is fruit. And, and every time he talks about fruit, he goes, the fruit isn't really the point. That's the effect that is happening. But the root is the thing that we're to be concerned with. He says it in a good way. He goes, look, man, we're to abide in the Holy Spirit and to abide with Christ. And the fruit will be the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit kind of takes care of itself if we focus on the root of abiding. He said sin is kind of the other way. The, the affair that happens, that's the fruit. And listen, it's a nasty thing, and we're, we're going to talk some about this, but that's not the real issue that needs dealt with. It's not just don't actually go forward with the act of an affair, he says, by the time that would happen, you've already crossed so many lines. There's already so much sickness and wickedness happening. We need to deal with it months before. We need to deal with what's going on in the heart. Let, let's look at some, some words here. Um, Kim had, had pointed out that that word look there, it doesn't mean to notice. To, to be driving down the street and to see, men, we've all been here, a woman running and going, she should be wearing more clothing. Let's just be honest. You're going to notice her because we should notice pedestrians, yes? None of us should drive with our eyes closed so that we don't happen to see something that we... You have your eyes open, you notice the person walking their dog, the kid on a bike, and the lady running, okay? We see it, we notice it. 
The question is, what happens next? Like Kim was saying, it's not. Jesus isn't going, look, if you are even tempted to look at a woman, how dare you? He's going, but when you choose to look at that woman, that, that word look there, again, it doesn't mean in a glance. It actually means to focus on, to investigate, to study. That same word is used when it says that God doesn't look at the outward appearance like man does, but he looks at the heart. He's not just glancing over it, but God studies our heart. He knows us. He is focused on the heart. And he says it's in the same way. It's not that first glance. It's when we choose to look. When, when, a, when a glance becomes a gawk, when a thought becomes a daydream, that is when we have crossed over into what Jesus is talking about here. There, there's a quote that I've used a number of times. If you've been here for a while, you may have heard this before. Martin Luther, uh, the church reformer, 500 years ago said this, and it is still so true today. Speaking of this, that, that glance, noticing something, or that thought that comes into your head that you weren't trying to have, but it's there. He says, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I can't stop that. I'm, I'm using the jogger, okay, because it's that time of year, but there, this can come in any kind of form. You can't stop that woman from running down the road, dressed in whatever she's dressed in, not your control. You can't even stop yourself from seeing her the first time but you can stop yourself from going back to it, from looking intently upon it. Or, or whatever the case may be for you girls, I've said this before and Kim always tells me to stop short of what I really want to say, I don't understand what you see in this, okay? It is a mystery to me, but this is not something that men alone deal with, but it's not the noticing the guy or the girl it's the coming back and focusing on intently. That is where the danger comes in, allowing the bird to begin to build a nest in your hair. He, he then uses the word to lust after her. Go ahead and put that uh, Matthew 5 passage back up. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her, that word lust has a very negative context. Uh, in, in the way that we use it. No one has ever talked about lusting after something good. Uh, it's just not how we use that word. But it means, listen, it wasn't just this sexual, like, to picture having sex with someone is to lust after them. Let's just call it what it is. What it really meant was to desire greatly, to pursue, to be something that you would pay a great cost for kind of idea and it's used in the scripture in both a negative and positive context. In 1 John chapter 2, this same word is used and it says, Do not love the world for the things that belong to, or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the, word, the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. The, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the things that our sinful nature is calling us to pursue, wants us to focus on and desire and chase after. He goes, look, there's the things of God and the things of the world, and if we are lusting after the things of the world, they're destined to perish, and if we're not careful, we'll perish with them. The things that we pursue, greatly desire, matter. 
In a positive context, Jesus uses that exact same word a few chapters later in Matthew 13. He's talking about, look, there was these prophets of old who were waiting for me to come, but they never got to see me. And this is what he tells his disciples. But your eyes are blessed because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For I assure you, many prophets and righteous people longed, that word longed there is the exact same word, to see the things you see, yet they didn't see them to hear the things you hear, yet they didn't hear them. He's not saying that it's wrong to, to desire something, to be passionate about something, even to pursue something. But what Jesus is saying is be careful what you pursue in your heart and in your mind because it truly matters. It's no longer just about actions. As long as I didn't cross that line with that woman or with that man, everything is okay. He goes, no, 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 no. What's happening in your heart and in your heart and in your mind matter because it will either bring life or destruction. What we choose to desire, because listen, it is a choice, matters. We choose the things that we focus on. It feels like, oh no, I, I'm just kind of drawn in that direction. But we feed those things and they become stronger, or we starve them and they become weaker. We desire the things of the world or we choose to desire the things of God. What we choose to desire matters. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery in the heart and adultery acted out have very different outward consequences. And so we can tend to put them in almost like separate categories. But what Jesus is trying to do is go, whether it's acted out or not, both lead to destruction in your heart. Adultery in any form always leads to broken relationships. Jesus is using adultery here. He's speaking specifically to it. But he's also saying, like, look, it works this way with all sin. He's not only going like, man, let's look at adultery just in a vacuum. He's using adultery. He's, he used murder and adultery so far. The two things that everyone in the crowd would have gone, it's wrong to kill and it's wrong to murder. Or excuse me, wrong, wrong to um, have adultery. Everyone would have agreed with it. But he's using these as examples for all sin. He's going, but what happens in your heart matters just as much. Whether everyone else sees what's going on or not, it's not just about the fruit, the outward action. It's about the root what's going on in your heart. All lived out sin, all actually committed sin that other people see is an expression of the sickness that's already been going on in our heart. It's a fruit of lusting after the wrong things, of desiring after the wrong things. But listen, we are professionals at rationalizing our behavior at finding loopholes and making why when I do it, it's okay. When they do it, it's disgusting. But I have a really good reason. We, we rationalize and we, we try to remove the guilt but still do what we want to do and we are masters at it. And they were no different back then in the first century. The natural human response in any given time to Jesus teaching on sin is to look for a loophole. How do I still do the things I want to do, just not feel guilty about them? 
And listen, in, in this crowd that Jesus was speaking to, a crowd mostly of men in first century Israel, they would have gone, I think I know what he's saying. I can't be married to this wife and desire that one. I have to divorce my current wife, obviously, so that I can go chase after her. And, and so Jesus goes into the, his very next teaching. He says, it was also said, he's, he's tying these two things together. Don't commit adultery, even in your heart. And listen, he knew they would go, okay, right, divorce her, so then it's not adultery. But listen, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery also. Again, he knew what was going on. They would have been going, oh, got it, got it, got it. I divorce her. Then I can pursue whoever I want. I can lust after whoever I want. And listen, they would have even had a verse that they could point to. They immediately in their minds would have gone back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. It says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. They would have been like, see, Moses said we're allowed to divorce her if she does something that displeases us, something improper. And listen, that, that word improper, some translations say unclean, that had an incredibly loose definition. There was a, a big movement in rabbinical teaching at the time, that rabbis were the teachers, and so rabbinical teaching is just what was commonly taught to the people, that said that word unclean, or some said immoral or improper, can literally mean anything. There was actually a teaching that said, it is not only on the table, but it is the right thing to do to divorce your wife if she burns your breakfast. We laugh because it's ridiculous. They were literally teaching this in the synagogues. It's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. What happened to a woman and her children if her husband just walked away from her? We're done. I, I'm, I'm going after somebody new. I don't want anything to do with you. What, what happened to her? Devastated. What, what else? She's on the street begging. Was she just going to become an entrepreneur and go start her own business somewhere? She was not. She, she would actually would have been considered unclean, defiled. She wouldn't have even been able to be a part of society at the time. She would have had to live on the outskirts, almost like a leper, because she was unclean. Her husband had left her. And, and so Moses comes in, in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy and goes, okay, this has to stop. Write her a certificate of divorce. In, in doing this, she's no longer unclean and defiled. There's kind of like a legal process that has happened, and she can now get remarried. She can now go back and live with her family. She, it, it opened a lot of doors for her. And so God, through Moses, was looking at this incredible brokenness and going, we can't keep doing this to people. And so he says, let me create this, this legal step to take that is going to protect this woman and her children who would have just been destitute in the old way of doing things. And listen, the Pharisees were listening to Jesus when he came and said, except for sexual immorality, you cannot divorce your wives. Like they were listening and they put it in their back pocket and they came up in Matthew 19, they brought it back up. It says to try to, to trap him. Some Pharisees approached him being Jesus to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife 
on any grounds. Again, this shows you how common it was. For whatever reason he wants, isn't it lawful for a man to leave his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to, to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. And I tell you, he read out, it's the same thing. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. But, but Jesus, we have this verse that tells us we can do whatever we want. That's how we interpret it anyway. And Jesus goes, look, this is not how it was ever meant to be. In the beginning, it was already written that the two become one flesh, inseparable, that no man should separate what God has bound together. This was a law they already had and had been breaking for hundreds of years by the time Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24. And God was going, okay, look, you're not listening to my first law about don't get divorced, so I'm going to create this loophole to protect these women and these children. There is a big difference between what God desires of us and what God is allowing to, to work with in a broken world. And that's hard for us because we like things black and white. But God's heart was so broken for these women and children that he said, okay, look, you're leaving them whether I tell you to or not. How do we protect them? Listen to the, to the hearts of, of how they even asked Jesus the question. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give them divorce papers and send them away? And Jesus responds, Moses permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. Never will you find the command that they, were, they had made up and were living under. But all of this was a way to rationalize them being able to lust after whatever they want. I've been married to this one for a couple years and there's a new model out, so it's time to upgrade I can divorce this one and go get that one because I'm allowed to lust after, pursue, chase after whatever I want. And Jesus was calling them on it and going, that's wickedness. You've made a commitment. You have covenanted with this person. Let no man separate it. And, and he, he gives still the loophole of, look, when there's, in the case of sexual immorality, in the case of adultery, you're, you're released. Again, it's not a command that you have to leave that person. But God goes, I, I get it. There, there's a case for release there. Anything outside of that, we have no biblical grounds for divorce. And l listen, this is a, I've been praying about this one all week. I had the music team praying with, praying with me this morning because this is a really hard teaching. I've, I've sat down with many people who have gone, but if you just met them, if you just understood what it was like, and I think the, the truth that the scripture has for us is this, if you're in this unhappy situation, this, this incredibly difficult situation of a marriage that, that looks like it's heading for divorce, that maybe you're even just praying that that person would take the steps so you can get out. Like, if you're in that place, 
the freedom, the happiness, the healing that you may be seeking through divorce, I think the scripture is clear, it won't be found there. You will not find what you're looking for through divorce. And, and I've had people sitting across from me with tears in their eyes and, and angry with me, going, but you don't know what it's like. You're right, I do not. But I do know that I trust in what the word of God says above even what I can see with my own eyes. His word teaches us that except for the case of sexual immorality, divorce is not on the table for the people of God. And listen, I've, I've said this before. If you are in an unsafe situation, please come and see us. We want to help you. This doesn't say just then remain in an abusive household. There are steps available to us. There is a thing called separation, which is not a means like the worldview separation is the step you take on your way to divorce. There is a biblical grounds for separation as a means of reconciliation. Let's get out of the pressure cooker so that we can actually begin to work on some of the problems with the hope of being able to come back together one day. Okay, there, there are some other options available to us, but if we are followers of Jesus, divorce is not on the table. And listen, they would have said the same thing. They would have gone, that is a hard teaching, Jesus. They're telling us we can do whatever we want and we can pursue happiness. We can lust after it, chase after it in whatever way we want. And it seems like you're putting the brakes on Jesus. That's a hard teaching. But listen, Jesus wasn't trying to teach them or us today how to pursue whatever it is our hearts were lusting after. Be that the woman down the street, be that the easy, comfortable life, he was trying to warn us that the things that our heart chases after can destroy us. And so we have to be very careful what we choose to lust after, what we choose to pursue. Because many things the world promise lead only to destruction. So, so let's go back. We skipped a passage in the middle there where Jesus said, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I tell you to even look after a woman lustfully in your heart is to commit adultery with her in your heart. And then we skip down to don't divorce. But there's this passage in the middle that's a pretty extreme passage. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Is Jesus actually telling them, pluck out an eye, cut off a hand? Let me ask you this question. Would it actually even be helpful to pluck out an eye or cut off a hand when it comes to battling sin? Why, would it, why wouldn't that work? Why wouldn't that help us at all? It would teach you a lesson, right? Does your desire to lust after things you see actually reside in your eye? Does your desire to, let's say, take things that don't belong to you, does that actually reside in your hand? He's just said that it's a heart issue. The issue is not your eye is bad or your hand is bad. The issue is your heart is sick. And if we don't address that, you're just going to continue in the same stuck way. 
Here's the point that he's trying to make in this. We naturally ask the question, how can I deal with sin? For those of us who, who are followers of Jesus, who read the words that he teaches, and we go, okay, I know that he's right. Lust is bad. Anger and hatred in my heart are bad. I, I should not do those. But here's the way we normally approach things. How can I deal with sin comfortably? How can I deal with sin in a way that I don't lose any sleep at night, that no one else ever has to know about it, that I don't have to make any major changes to my life, but I can still be rid of this sin, and that option is not left open to us. Jesus says to truly deal with sin in the way I'm calling you is like gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand. Why, most of us in here would never agree to pluck out an eyeball, right? Let's be weird for a sec. Why not? Because it would hurt. What else? You would only have one eye. I mean, an eye patch looks kind of cool. Maybe that would be good, but like it would, it would not be a pleasant process, right? If I plucked out an eye, would I be able to see as well as the rest of you? No, I, I might be missing something still, right? David Lee's not in here. I joke with him all the time. David only has the function of one eyeball. It was an accident when he was younger, and so we make depth perception jokes or like try to sneak up on him from this side. David is, I, I'm pretty sure he'd be cool with me talking about it right here, but th there's some things that you lose when that happens, and we have the same fears when it comes to dealing with our sin. But if I am as aggressive as Jesus is talking about here, isn't that going to hurt? And what if I miss out on something that I would really enjoy? What if that causes me to have to say no to some things that I really want to do or, or that everyone else gets to do, but I'm not able to because I've taken this, this hard stance on sin? We want to be comfortable. It's a natural human thing. But Jesus says things like, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, because it's so much better to lose a part of your body than to have the whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus talks about following him in, in really extreme terms. Over in Luke chapter 9, this is a really familiar passage. Then he said to them all, all his disciples and those that were following him, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself. Nope, that doesn't sound fun. He must take up his cross. That sounds like death. I don't want that. And follow me. But whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Jesus did not at any point in time leave us a middle ground. You can be comfortably in and comfortable with your sin. He said the kind of people that I am looking for will deal with sin correctly because it has the ability to destroy them, to break relationship between me and them. And they will so hunger and thirst for righteousness, back to the Beatitudes, that there's nothing they won't do to be rid of this root of sin in their lives. Is this making sense, church? There's a, a statement that I believe the Lord gave me a few years ago, and I have allowed this to be one of my guiding lights. When I'm in a spot where I'm kind of like, man, I'm not sure exactly what to do, there, there's a couple key statements that I come back to, that, that guide me when things are confusing. And I believe this came from the Lord, and it's this, sin is ruthless, be ruthless in kind. Sin has a singular outcome, and it is destruction. Destruction of relationship, 
destruction of the things that I was actually created for, ultimately for those who choose sin over their relationship with Christ, eternal destruction. Sin has a singular outcome, and it is destruction. It is ruthless. It does not wait for a convenient time to come into the light. And, oh, man, I didn't know they were dealing with that. It is always, as the scripture says, the enemy is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And it is ruthless. And to think that you can deal with a ruthless enemy with half measures is foolishness. What Jesus is teaching is sin is ruthless. It is trying to destroy you. You have to be just as ruthless in kind. There is nothing that I won't do to separate myself from this sin. To find true healing, to find true life. If we don't have this kind of passionate pursuit, this lust after the things of God, we will try to walk this middle ground, sit on this fence, and that was never left open to us gouge out the eye, cut off the hand. It, it, it's cancerous, it's, it's spreading, it's infesting you. Cut it out, do whatever it takes because it will destroy you. I'll give an example of this in my own life. Um, Kim and I have had a lot of conversations, this, this whole thing of being ruthless with sin. I decided years ago, back to this, example that Jesus is using about adultery and adultery in the heart, that I will not play around with sexual immorality. I, I have addiction to pornography in my background and all kinds of stuff, and there came a point when I said, no more. I will do whatever it takes to live freely and in the open with who God has called me to be. And so one of the things that, that Kim and I have is, if I am in any kind of relationship with a woman, and there is, I find myself, I heard the word one time and I, it made a lot of sense to me. There's just too much synergy between me and that woman. I, I find myself just wanting to spend a little more time around her. All of a sudden, whether she laughed at a joke or not matters to me. I maybe look for excuses to go over and say something to her, whatever it might be. When I start to notice that there's just too much synergy between me and that person, I go and I tell my wife and I say, hey, this is awkward. Actually, this is humiliating for me. But I just need to tell you, this person over here, they've not done a thing wrong. They probably have no clue that this is happening. We haven't crossed any lines. We haven't. But I feel something starting in my heart that I refuse to allow to remain. I want to gouge it out. And so, Kim, this person, I'm going to make intentional steps to distance myself from. Not, I'm not going to be mean to them. I'm not, you know, again, they've done nothing wrong. But I've noticed the seeds of something starting to sprout in my heart, and I refuse to play around with it. I want to be ruthless with my purity. And so I bring my wife in, and we pray over it, and I take some intentional steps that hopefully that person never knows. I never want anyone to feel like I'm distancing myself from them. But I refuse to toy around with it. If this is leading, I'm starting to feel the beginnings of lust in my heart. I'm taking action now. I'm not going to wait and play around. I'm not going to go, well, but we haven't done anything. But there's, we've all heard the stories. No one ever crosses a line until they do. And if we're just waiting for that to happen, we're allowing that sin to gain control. 
Sin is ruthless. Its desire is to destroy you every single time. We have to be a people who are ruthless with our sin in kind. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think what Jesus was saying is, you've heard that it was said, don't do this on the outside. But I tell you, pay attention to your heart because every action, good or bad, flows out of the heart. The heart is the soil of our life. That's where the seeds get planted. Everything that comes out, good or bad, comes from the soil of our heart. And so what Jesus is saying is pay attention to the desires of your heart, to the things that you are longing after, to the things that are becoming more important that you're pursuing, that are motivating you, because they're either leading you to the person that God has created you to be or to destruction. There really is no middle ground. So it's not just about don't do this, but pay attention to what's happening in your heart. So I want to end our, our time together this morning by doing something we've been starting to do a little more often, and that's just sit before the Lord with a couple questions to ask and allow the Lord to just speak to our hearts. I, I have been praying all week for his conviction on his church. And that's a weird thing to pray for because we tend to think of conviction as like a bad thing, right? It makes me feel a little icky inside. But really the conviction of the Lord is him going, this is dangerous and it's killing you. Walk away from it. The conviction of the Lord is an opportunity to find freedom. And so I've been praying for his conviction on his church this week. And so what I want to do now is simply give him opportunity to sit in silence for a few minutes. Go ahead and put those questions up there for me, Emily. And to ask the Lord, is there any sin that you need to convict me of? Is there some sin going on that maybe I'm not aware of? Or maybe you've been convicting and I've been trying not to look at it? Is there sin that the Lord is convicting you of? And listen, here's the way that the Lord convicts. He, he, brings, he shines his light on it. He goes, this is an issue what the Lord doesn't say is, stop it, quit it. What's wrong with you? Have you guys ever seen, there was the, um, oh my goodness, what was his name now? Oh, comedian, Bob Newhart. Uh, there's the, an old skit where he is a counselor and this lady comes into him and he goes, well, I charge, uh, I only charge for five minutes. And she's like, five minutes? What are we gonna do in five minutes? He goes, if I don't fix you by then, I can't fix you. He's like, oh, okay. She says, well, you know, I'm scared. I live in fear all the time, and I, and I don't want to live in fear. And he goes, okay, you ready? Do you want to write this down? She says, yeah. Stop it. She says, what? He goes, don't do that. Quit it. And she's like, well, that's, that's not really helpful. Well, do you want to keep doing it? No. Then stop it. And it, Google it. It's worth it. But it goes on for a little bit. But the whole point is going, that is not good advice. That is not helpful for God to just go, you're doing this wrong, quit it. He will shine his light and he will go, this is dangerous, this is killing you. But then he invites you to ask the next question. Where does that sin come from? What's causing that sin in my life? My heart is sick and that's why the sin is coming out. Lord, would, would you help me go deeper? What's going on in my heart that is causing me to say this, to do this, to act like this? It's asking the next question. Why am I so angry, lustful, proud, dishonest, fearful? What, whatever sin he convicts you of, 
Lord, where is it coming from? And let me give you a, a couple quick parameters to put around it. If when you ask that question, Lord, why am I so angry? Why am I so lustful, fearful? If your answer begins with, because they do this, that's not the Lord. Lord, why do I lust so much? Well, because those women keep running in clothes they shouldn't run in. That's not the Lord. That's your own heart protecting itself and deflecting. The Lord isn't going to go, you're having a problem in your heart because they are doing this. Because my spouse is like this, and if they would just stop, I'd be good. No, you wouldn't. The sickness in your heart would still be there. A much better question is, Lord, what am I lusting after that's causing me to choose this sinful behavior? Does this make sense to you guys? So let's just spend a few minutes just in silence here asking the Lord. It, the first question, you might be able to zoom right past because you already know the answer. If not, just spend time going, Lord, is there sin that I'm blind to? Would you convict my heart? And if he does, ask that next question. Where is it coming from? So let's spend a few moments. Lord Jesus, would we experience the grace of your conviction, Lord? Your light in our hearts is always a gift. It's always meant to bring healing. You don't convict to wound or to shame. You convict because you're trying to show us there is sickness that is harming us and you desire for us to be free and whole. So Lord, may we welcome your conviction in these next few moments, but God, as we leave this place, May we be a people that seek you out and say, Lord, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me so that you can lead me in the way everlasting. And Lord, as that sin comes up, may we be humble enough to ask the next question. Where is this coming from? What, what is sick in my heart? And how do I begin to seek healing? God, these are prayers that I believe you will always answer when we come humbly before you and seek you in this way. So would you speak, God, clearly to us? I pray against the enemy who desires to bring guilt and shame, who desires to bring separation because of this where we feel like we have to hide. That is not from you. You do not work through guilt and shame. So Lord, would you give us eyes to see what it is you have to say for us because it is always for our good and for your glory. So continue to speak, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask the music team to come, and we're going to close with a song called Give.